All right. Hello, everyone. This is Numair Qureshi from Mixotype. Uh, this is our Mixo chat series with uh, Dr. Steve Taubman. So, Dr. Steve Taubman is uh, he's a chiropractor by trade, but now he's a best selling author and he's an international speaker. He focuses on mental resilience and peak performance. So, he coaches in that area and he's got a few different products that he's been working on. What I like most about what I've learned from him is that he tends to figure out a way to be actively present in the moment while he's going over some of life's deepest challenges. And so in his most recent book that I read, which is uh, Bulletproof, I'd recommend that you buy a copy. He kind of goes through this whole um, series of perspectives that you can use to become mentally resilient on your own journey. And so, uh, Steve, would you like to talk kind of about that and how that came about? Sure, absolutely. Thanks. First of all, thanks for having me here, Numair. It's really fun to be uh, planning, uh, you know, to get a little time together and really, you know, get a little deeper into some of these topics. Uh, yeah, the, the idea of, of writing this particular book, Bulletproof, uh, came from um, reflecting on what my earlier work was. Uh, my first book is called Unhypnosis, and it's about uh, essentially waking up and living a life you, you're meant to live. Uh, which involves figuring out what your real journey should be and maybe jumping ship and starting a new thing. Uh, so it was really about reinventing your life from a new place. Uh, but I realized there are a lot of people who would say to me, well, that's all well and good if, you know, if you're ready to pick up and start something new. But what if you're going to stay where you are? You know, what if you're in a job or you're in a relationship or something and you're not, you know, you're not, you don't plan to leave it, but you would like to be better at dealing with what comes up while you're in it. So that's where this book came from. The idea of bulletproof, uh, the print, the the metaphor comes from Superman. So remember, Superman, uh, he'd stand there with his hands on his hips, and people would shoot at him, and he'd just smile, and the bullets would bounce off, and and he was fine with that. So he wasn't wanting there to not be bullets; he was simply impervious to them. And I thought, what a great metaphor in our lives. If we could all be impervious to the bullets that are that are being shot at us rather than blaming others for shooting them in the first place or being upset. Because those are bullets of, of disapproval, bullets of overwhelm, bullets of, of demand, uh, you know, all the different ways in which the world seems to um, throw things at us that we don't want. And how can we maintain our composure and stay the course and be focused on achieving what we want to achieve despite the bullets that are flying? And you know, what's interesting, Numair, is that uh, a lot of those bullets are bullets we're firing at ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, I'll never accomplish this. What's the matter with me? Um, it's not okay to do this. So we're constantly uh, in a state of of, of um, being under attack by the world or by ourselves. And what if we could, you know, create a little bit of a bubble that uh, that keeps all that stuff out? I love it. And so what I found in this when I read this book, there's a lot of what I love about this as compared to Eckhart Tolle's work. And I love Eckhart Tolle's work, Power of Now as well. Yeah, when Eckhart Tolle's work, I mean, it was very much question, answer, question, answer. He, and he answered different perspectives and different questions and kind of gave you his own scenario of what he would do to tackle that sort of an issue. Right. And that's cool. I think it's pretty good. But I think that the one limitation of his book was that unless you truly understood that the grounding principle was just be present. And if other than that, you have to remember all these other questions and scenarios and okay, 
What I liked about your work was that it really just kind of broke down the entire system and took a five-step framework. Mm -hmm. And it made it really simple. My takeaway from this was, I would say, I mean, I, I gained value from every single trajectory. I really love the happiness component because I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I mean, we always tend to put our happiness future state. So, yeah. and you, you put it pretty eloquently in there. You gave us research and citations talking about how when most of us delay our happiness and we fix it to some future state, like, oh, once I get that car, or once I get that house, then I'll be happy. Or once I get that relationship, we're almost damaging the process. And it seems like based on your work, it's the better thing to do would be to be happy first and kind of use those other goals as extensions of your growth, if you will. And so I guess my question is, how do you recommend being in that state of mind when you know that getting something does get you, make you happy? For instance, I'll give you an example. Like when you take a look at like the state of nature, for instance, right? And you're struggling. Like if, if you don't have a car, then you got to bike to the grocery store. And as a matter of fact, your expenses are going to be that much more. Like imagine this. So you can't buy your groceries because you have nothing to put them inside. You can only ride a bicycle and your bicycle can only carry so much, right? So then you're forced to go to your local Wawa or convenience store where everything's marked up insanely. And in some cases, you're living a more expensive lifestyle. And a lot of that's like cyclical. And I guess, and I, I guess it does mess with your diet and all these other things. And my thing is, how does someone who is struggling, who doesn't really have all their needs met, still find a way to be happy on their way towards growing? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Numair. You know, one of the things that I've read about happiness is that when you, uh, when you reach a certain point of, of having your needs met, basic needs being met, uh, then very little else makes you any happier than that. So yes, there's certainly something to be said for if your needs aren't being met, you're going to have more of a hunger for getting some things that you need. But I think what we need to do more than anything else is to guard against the, the, the habitual nature or the addictive nature of, of, of striving and yearning and grabbing and grasping, right? So yes, I need a car if I've got a bike and I need someplace to put my groceries and I need to have enough money to buy those groceries. And I also at the same time need to know that this process I'm going through right now, this hunger, this you know, desire to get to the next level, nothing's gonna make that go away unless I have some commitment to reflecting, self-reflecting on my own level of happiness. So I might say, you know, okay, this is an interesting time and I'm passionate about getting to the next level, but I'm gonna still check in with myself right now. I'm gonna still maybe get quiet. I'm gonna still like look for things to be grateful for. I'm not gonna be grumpy about the fact that this is what my life looks like. I'm just gonna experience this as my current adventure. And that's really good for us to think about now. You know, here we are during the coronavirus and so many people are, are you know, a bit freaked out because their lifestyle has changed. And the way I look at it is, well, we never had this experience before. What an interesting experience to live through. I mean, it's kind of fascinating. And yeah, I'm making money out of maybe I've got to make sacrifices. That too is an experience. And that and I, I still have choice about how I interact with that experience. Gotcha. No, that's a great answer. And so that's, it's a tough space to be in, especially when you're in that 
in that environment where things are kind of like poverty stricken, but it's kind of like one of those things where you kind of have to force yourself to see the silver lining and to become fully present. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a choice. I mean, it's the choice is can I be present in it, with this? I'll give you an example. Like right now I am just finishing up the, uh, the 10th, uh, the 10th module of a 10 day, a 10 day program from Wim Hof. He's the guy who has, you know, uh, run a marathon above the Arctic Circle barefoot and swum 200 feet under polar ice and climbed Mount Everest in his shorts and submerged himself in ice water for an hour and 42 minutes. And, you know, what he's basically proven is that our, our capacity uh, for, uh, for extreme conditions is much greater than we ever thought possible. And that it all comes down to what you do with your mind. Right. So and most of that has to do with high levels of presence, learning to breathe in a certain way, learning to focus in a certain way. And that way, when you're experiencing uh, stimuli that your brain could just grab onto and decide to make it a bad thing, you've trained yourself just to keep your mind quiet and just experience the stimuli. You know, what if an itch is not the biggest problem you've ever had? What if uh, being in freezing water is not the biggest problem you've had? What if a little bit of poverty is not the biggest problem you've ever had? You know, what if uh, a breakup isn't the biggest problem you've ever had? How would your life look if suddenly those experiences were just kind of something that as if you were watching them in a movie? I really like that a lot. So that when you're talking about like watching from a perspective that it's like a movie, it's like the part in the book where you talk about becoming the observer, right? Yes. Where you're just, instead of being caught up in the drama of where, what life is presenting you, you just kind of take a moment, step back and see what's going on. Yeah. Wim Hof is incredible. Like his story is amazing. Like he puts himself, I think what happened was he, his story is even like, I guess even more uh, heart wrenching because his wife committed suicide years ago. And I think that's what kind of started his journey into just figuring himself out. And he started putting himself into like really extreme environments and situations. And he exposes himself to these like sub zero temperatures. He's very, he climbed Mount Everest in his shorts, but his, his message is starting to become world like mainstream. He talks about how we're all connected to our breath. And it's, it's interesting, right? When you talk about like, these surface level thoughts like okay um well are you really that hungry are you really that poor and i remember i was watching this one video uh it was by uh, steven larson he's part of the, the click funnels team with uh, russell brunson and steven at one point he was really like he had hit rock bottom and he needed like three thousand dollars to get himself out of the hole now, he knew that his dad actually had the money. So reluctantly, he calls his dad up. And now this guy is married and he needs to support his wife and they're not making any money. And so Stephen reluctantly calls his dad up and says, hey, dad, can you just please, please wire me $3,000? I promise I'll pay you back. And his dad, he like pauses for a second, goes silent, and then he goes, no. And Steve is kind of caught off guard. And his dad says, if I give you this $3,000, then you will never be able to tap into the resources you never knew you had. And that was like a light bulb that went off for him. So I think you're right. Like 
we kind of take these surface level and sometimes they're, they're big problems, but we can go so much deeper, so much deeper into our own strength. Yeah, it's there for us. And I think that's a great story for exactly that reason. It's like sometimes, sometimes those kinds of changes are thrust upon us. Like in that situation, you know, he was kind of forced into, you know, kind of backed into a wall and, you know, you never know what you can do until you're backed into a wall. But sometimes we make a conscious choice to try something new, to do something new. Uh, and it really doesn't matter whether it was conscious choice or whether it was thrust upon us. At some point, something's going to change. And until it changes, the, the mindset that we've adopted and our, and our desire, or our willingness and our commitment to maintain a positive outlook about it has an impact on what the outcome is going to be. Because you could play victim, you could feel terrible, and then you'll never see any opportunities. You know, you'll just, you know, collapse more and more deeply into your sadness and your sense of, of uh, you know, effrontery. I can't believe nobody helped me. And he could have done that. But that's not what he did. Right. So that's why we say in Bulletproof, you know, choose happiness first, uh, not as the outcome of some set of activities, but as a stance that you take. And that doesn't mean you're going to feel happy all the time. It means happiness is a um, it's a yardstick. You know, am I happy? No. Okay. Well, what do I need to do to get happy that doesn't involve changing my circumstances? What are my, what, what resources are available to me right now that can allow me to, you know, to shift into a, into a more positive state of mind, a more positive frame of mind with which I will then play the game of life. Right. So how do I do that? And that's what, that's, see, that's just the, for the first step is choose it. The first step is make that commitment. And then it becomes a question of now, now what, are the, now what are the steps? What are the things that people who are resilient have learned how to do that I haven't yet learned how to do? That's interesting, right? And it always goes back to that starting point. See, a lot of the time, I think that we try to enter a state of, I don't want to say discompassion, but we're almost wired into thinking, well, all right, right now I'm happy but I'm not getting what I want. So let me respond to this thing that I'm not getting with, with sadness or anger or despair. If I put on a pouty face, will this <laughs> get me what I want? And I think when you're like a two-year-old, three-year-old, you put that pouty face on, you're, I guess you're sometimes rewarded with what you want. And I think that carries out into the future, but it's like, it's so counterintuitive. Like, you don't get the girl, you don't get the guy, you don't get the, the grade that you want, you don't get the job that you want. And even so, in the face of all of this, you're still looking straight, you're locked in. I, I learned this the hard way, I mean, literally, just physically, just training to fight full contact. And yeah. I remember, like, so I'm training, and I don't like dipping and dodging, but the second a, a punch comes towards my face, I'm like, no. No, no, right? And and the worst thing you can do is when someone's punching you is to buckle and yeah. to like get into your guard like this and just shy away because the second you shy away, that's their cue. They see the biggest opening and then they can attack you, they can knock you out. But conversely speaking, if you just stand there and you just look them dead in the eye, they punch you in the face and you can still look them straight in the eye, it's going to be harder for them to punch you again uh i think i found that there's a lot of parables and metaphors and life lessons you learn from just being in the ring that in some ways just i guess through flight or fight you're you're 
you're forced to just embrace what's in front of you. So I, I, I resonate with what you just said, definitely. I love that. I mean, that's a great metaphor and it's a great life example of what we're talking about here. It's like, cause that's the whole bulletproof mentality. It's like, you're just letting yourself be with the thing because if you shy away from it, if you pull back from it, uh, it makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. It, it basically, you know, the attack comes even more strongly. And that's true of anything. That's the same as, you know, immersing yourself in ice water. You know, if you kind of shrink away from it, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get in. Uh, you're not gonna get, you know, you get into the cold shower and you're doing this, and, you know, we, we're, we're shying away from life. And how is it that this is any different from what we're doing in our business or in our relationships? It's we're shying away, we're playing the game of aversion. I don't like this. I've got to get away from this versus this 180 degree opposite stance, which is I'm going to uh, I'm going to be regal like like a king or queen on the throne. Right. And whatever is coming, I'm just going to maintain my composure and, and I'm going to let it come. And I'm going to let it go. And I, it's and eventually my dignity and my forbearance is going to be the thing that's going to move me through to the other side. That's the most interesting thing, right? So how is it that we're more likely to get what we want, even if the thing that we want doesn't necessarily want us back? Meaning, let's say you're, you're, you're working your tail off to get into a certain university yeah. or you're working your tail off to get into a certain job. And you know you just keep account encountering obstacle after obstacle. There's lots of but this is what you want. Like out of anything else, this is the one thing that you want mm -hmm. in that case. I mean, from the perspective of your book, the way you framed it up, you almost lead off the book by stating, well, what if you don't get what you want? What if you're stuck where you are? How do you make the best of what you've got? How do you make the best? If you can't escape your nine to five job, how do you still become a resilient? But at the same time, if you're trying to go after something that you do want, something that's bigger than you, but you keep facing obstacle after obstacle, do you still stay happy and have that smirk on your face? And do you still keep trying? Or do you at some point have to reframe yourself and think, all right, that thing that I really want is inaccessible by me. I can't approach it for whatever reason. Maybe I should just fold, but still be happy. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are nuances of any kind of rejection. There are nuances of any kind of um, uh, aspiration or longing, right? So uh, I, at one level, uh, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if we just all felt perfectly happy no matter what? But, at this, but, you know, part of this methodology we're talking about is to allow you to feel more comfortable, not just comfortable, more peaceful and more joyful in whatever circumstance you're in. That's not to say that you don't have things you want to accomplish. And it's not to say that you don't strive to accomplish those things. And it's not necessarily even to say that, uh, that you're not going to be disappointed if, that, if you don't get it. What it is to say, though, is that if I can sort of herald my resources, my inner resources, while I'm trying to get this thing, there's a much better likelihood you're going to get it because you've got more resources to work with. So, and most people never really embrace the resources at their disposal because they don't believe in them or they think it's, you know, it's bull or whatever. But, you know, if you are trying to get into that university, if I were trying to get into that university, I would have no hesitation about like doing visualization exercises on a daily basis, putting myself at that university. 
right? So I would utilize the, the, the power of my subconscious mind because part of being happy now is, you know, creating an image for myself now. So it's almost like a game. It's like, oh boy, when I, once I get there, it's going to be like this and it's going to be like that. Now, most people don't do that because if I, if I give myself the luxury of creating a, a, a clear vision of, of the outcome I seek and then I don't get it, I'm going to be that much more disappointed. That's what most people would think, right? If I'm trying to get into that university and, you know, I've done everything I can and I've done all the work to get there. And now I'm just sitting there thinking, I really, really, really want to get there. Now I'm going to be miserable until I know. Versus me, I'm going to do all the same stuff. I'm going to do all the things I'm supposed to do. And then every day I'm going to sit down. I'm going to just revel in the experience of already being there. And I'm going to create the image in my mind of already being there. I'm going to do that every single day. Now, what's going to happen? Two things. Number one, um, whether you believe in the metaphysical side of this or not, uh, what um, Mark Victor Hansen used to say, whatever you want, wants you, which is a really interesting concept. He's like basically saying that if you really clearly visualize it, it's going to have an impact on the outcome. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's, maybe it's a little too new agey, a little too optimistic. But there is a possibility that something shifts inside of your physiology that makes you a little bit more likely to um, exude a certain kind of enthusiasm. Maybe because you're really positive and seeing yourself already there, uh, you notice when somebody walks by who's already a student there and you get into a conversation with them and they happen to be you know, uh, involved with somebody who works in the admissions office. So there are things that happen to people who stay super positive that don't happen to people who are white knuckling it. That's one part of the formula. The other part of the formula is if you fully experienced what you're looking for, what you want, and then you don't get it, well, you still had all that time to enjoy it. There's, all, there's, there's something of a positive nature about positive visualization, right? Don't be so caught up in reality that you don't allow yourself to create a new reality. Uh, in Don Quixote, he says, um, uh, madness is, um, how does he put it? Um, seeing, uh, seeing only what you want rather than what could be. Only what is rather than what could be. Give yourself the luxury of seeing what could be. Does that make sense to you? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a different point of view. The idea is that wherever I am right now, what is going to improve my mental state? And part of what might improve my mental state is visualizing success. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. I, so I consider myself to be more of a scientist and mm -hmm. from that lens, I've also, I can say that I've had these incredible experiences cause I do visualize. I mean, I sit down and I visualize how I want my life to be. Mm -hmm. And just from a physiological standpoint, what it does is it lets me program my brain for one. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I have, I follow a strict diet regimen. I follow a strict exercise regimen, but before I get into any of that, I visualize myself in my mind, how I want my body to appear. And because of that, it makes it so that any cravings that I would have had otherwise, they do subside. I'm actually finding that I'm able to stay the course and it's consistent. I found that the one thing that people dismiss more than anything else is visualization because they think that whatever, new age, woo woo, taboo, whatever, you can approach it from any different angle. And of course, if you want to look at it from a physics standpoint and science, like, does this really happen? I mean, 
whatever the case is, there's a subjective experience and there's the objective experience. And from the subjective experience, from like Namir Qureshi's point of view, I've had experiences where as I started to visualize things, I started to notice patterns externally and it was almost like this is too good to be true. And so I love the point of what you say, look, if you visualize yourself, you tap into those resources, then chances are you're more likely gonna achieve the thing that you desire. It's counterintuitive because by being pouty face about it, by whining and by complaining, you actually lose some stature there. And the thing that you want probably repels you, is repelled by you. It's almost like I was reading this book by 50 Cent, uh, the rapper, and it's phenomenal. Um, I recommend anyone read that book. But he gives us an example. He says, do you want to know the quickest way to get a million dollar loan at the bank? He says, walk in with a million dollars already in your bank account. And it's a metaphor, right? But the whole idea is that if you are already grounded in your own happiness, if you're already just centered and you see the thing that you want, then you're more likely to attain it. Now, what's interesting though, is that in this book of yours, you don't really talk about visualization at all. And you might hit upon it, but you don't talk about visualization. And I think that's so important. Uh, is there a reason why you don't go into that specific uh, depth of that? I don't know. Um, I think it maybe maybe it was just wasn't where I was heading at that time. But I'm curious because uh, one of the things I do talk about in here is um, changing the narrative. You do. You do. And and I think you know from that perspective, and also from the perspective of monitoring your thinking. Um, yeah, I probably could have gone a little bit more into detail about where that might lead you. But the truth of the matter is that if you're doing those things, you're more likely to start moving in that direction, right? So uh, if I'm monitoring my thinking and I notice that when I'm thinking negative thoughts, what it means is I'm, I'm still visualizing. I'm just visualizing negatively. What if this doesn't happen? It's basically me rehearsing the worst possible case scenario. And somehow we've all grown up this way. We've all grown up believing I better not want it too much. If I want it too much, it's not going to happen. So instead, I might as well just like, you know, act like I won't get it anyway. And then it'll be a pleasant surprise when I get it. And it never works that way. It always works the opposite way. It's always when you've got the enthusiasm and the optimism and the clarity and the vision, and you know, you're monitoring your thinking to make sure that that's what you're doing, that, you know, it's not magic. It's like you said, there are a million subtle changes in your physiology when you do that. And you're also more likely to take the appropriate action. Like who's going to be more likely to do the exercise if you're overweight to get you know, down to your ideal body weight, the person who's sitting around feeling like a piece of crap because they weigh too much, or the person who's seeing what it looks like to be the person they want to be and seeing themselves eating well and healthy. And, and then, as you said, you, your cravings for certain kinds of foods drop away and your enthusiasm through the exercise arises and you start doing it and then you start noticing things you missed before and it, it begins to create a momentum for you. So that's, that's my experience anyway. I think you're right about that. And uh, one of the challenges I had earlier, earlier on in my life was it's, it's one thing to visualize the thing if you know what you want clearly. Like if I want to become like a neurosurgeon at Harvard, sure, I'll visualize myself into it. There's actually, there's a book by this neurosurgeon called, by James Do Doty. Yeah, James Doty. Mm -hmm. And it's called Into the Magic Shop, I believe. And in this book, it's a neurosurgeon 
who had the worst grades imaginable. He grew up in a poverty-stricken household. His dad wasn't the greatest. And he found a, this lady at a magic shop who taught him how to visualize. And he, he swears by the fact that by him visualizing himself into success, he actually became a neurosurgeon. It's, it's, it's a true life story. Yeah. The thing that I found, though, is that it seems like the people who know what they want, they visualize it. And then it's easy, not easier, because they still have to go through the trials and tribulations. But what if you don't really know what you want? Where does your thoughts come into the process of becoming? Like, it's kind of like the story of Goldilocks, right? At first, you might think you want this bed, but through experience, you realize, oh, wait, I really wanted that other bed. Or if I'm sitting there and I'm visualizing Harvard, Med uh, Harvard Medicine, right? And then I finally get to the point where I'm like, oh, wait a minute, Princeton is better for me. What do you uh, take on, what's your take on course correction as you're visualizing your life? Well, my personal take on, on it is that before, before you uh, get into the habit of visualizing what you want, I think that there is a, there's a prerequisite to that. And the prerequisite is, is connecting at a deeper level with yourself because what's more important than you getting what you want is knowing who you are and having access to your own resources and being able to identify what that even is. So what happens for a lot of people is that they start, as you said, visualizing what they want, but it isn't really what they want. It's probably what they've rehearsed themselves to want based on what their parents told them to want or society told them to want. Uh, and so they're not really in touch with the true nature of their own being. Uh, so that's why in the first book, in Own Hypnosis, I talk about discover your essence as step one. Discover your essence, which is like discovering that quiet part within where, you know, there's no identity. It's pre-identity. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I am. I just know that I'm connected with myself. I've learned how to get quiet. Because if you can't embrace silence, if you can't embrace the here and the now, how are you going to embrace anything else that comes along later? How can you even know for sure that you're barking up the right tree? It's like you've been spending your life like putting a ladder up against the building. And you finally climb to the top of the building and realize it's the wrong building right? So you've got to get in touch with yourself. So that's where mindfulness practices come in. That's why, why it's so important for us uh, to meditate or to contemplate or to go out for a walk and observe nature and not let ourselves get caught in our brains because our brains become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We keep thinking the same thoughts over and over again. And those thoughts may not come from the essence of who we are. They may just be old thoughts that are still hanging on old desires. So what I would say to somebody who doesn't know what they want, I'd say, good for you. I'd say, that's awesome. I'd say, because like, let's face it. Um, let's, let's play with it in language. Let's use it for, as a, as a linguistic exercise. Okay. If I know that I want this book, then I want this book. Um, if I want, you know, this little thing here then I know that I want this thing, right. But what if I want nothing, right? Well, if I want nothing, then what it's telling me is what I want is nothing. I want the experience of nothing. An experience that anybody in our society doesn't even know what the hell that means. But it's a prerequisite to a deeper level of awareness. So if like, if I'm somebody who doesn't know what I want, it very likely means that what I really want is nothing. And if what I want is nothing, then what I'm gonna do is I'm going to go after nothing the same way I would have gone after something. And how do I go after nothing? Well, I, I meditate, I get quiet, I like, I explore and I, it, into the deepest recesses of my being and I get, ah, so that's what nothing feels like. 
You know, that's, that's the part of me that I have denied and pushed aside. And what's li what lives in the space of nothing is infinite possibility, creativity, imagination. That's the part I haven't touched. So if I'm, if I'm not wanting something, what I'm wanting is nothing. And if what I'm wanting is nothing, then that's an awesome thing to go after. That's incredible. I love that. It's like, it's almost like if you, if you're overwhelmed with decision and there's so many choices and you don't know what to take. So you're like, all right, well, let me just go after nothing. Yeah. Counterintuitively, what you really need is to reach for that silence is what you're talking about. That's right. It's a, and I, I'll tell you what, I, it's almost embarrassing to say that it took me years and years and years to have that epiphany. It was like, oh, what's happening is that my soul is telling me to like embrace nothingness. That's why it's so hard to figure out what I want to do because I never, it never occurred to me that there was something else I needed more and sooner. Before I go off after, you know, some imaginary goal, maybe I just need to like really tune in on, on what I've denied within myself. You know, maybe I need to do some healing. Maybe I just need to tap into my inner source of creativity, but somehow there's something powerful in nothing. So if you're somebody who doesn't know where you, what you want, it means what you want at this particular moment is nothing. And the, and the best advice that I don't think that, that I think anybody has ever given was the third Zen patriarch who said, um, he said, you know, take the next right step. You know, what's, what, can, do you have the patience to sit as the, as the water settles, as the, you know, and the next right action becomes obvious? Maybe it's not time. <laughs> That's insightful. I, it's like, I liken that metaphor to one of my, my, the favorite, my, I guess my favorite part of your book, and there's a lot, but my favorite was uh, the part where you talk about how you can't push the river and yeah. it makes you just really just appreciate what's going on that whatever's happening right now is happening. You can't rush through the process. So if you can kind of just be calm and present, that's probably the best way to get through whatever you're going through. And, and the quickest. And the quickest, right, right. So it's counterintuitive just by, instead of just trying to force the issue, whatever it is, if you can, for one way, visualize what you want as if you already have it, it puts you at peace. You kind of know that things are going to work themselves out when they need to. Maybe there's some things that you got to grow into. Maybe there's some certain things that you have to learn. And you just can't rush through the process. So I, I, I like that Zen uh, quote that you just kind of put out there. It's important. When we, when we observe other people, it's easier to see it in others than in ourselves. But, you know, it's that thing that you see some people becoming anxiety-ridden and panic-stricken about not knowing the next right step. But, but what am I going to do? I need to know. I, it's, you know, don't, don't tell me all this new age stuff because I really need to know what to do next. It's really, really important. And they develop like this incredible uh, anxious energy around having to know the answer. And as long as they maintain that, ang that anxious energy about having to know the answer, they never get the answer, right? They're, yeah, yeah, but at first I need the answer. No, first what you need is to shut up. First what you need to do is just like get quiet and like let it arise naturally. And that's a quicker way to get there. And again, as you said, it's counterintuitive. If I need to have an answer, I need it now. And if I need it now, I better use my head to find it. My head is the worst, you know, tool for the job. It's my heart, it's my soul that I need to tap into. So if you're not there, it's just, where are you in relationship to aversion? Aversion, what are you, what are you averse to? I'm averse to uncertainty, I don't know what to do. 
oh my God, I don't know what to do. This is terrible. I don't know what to do. That's, that's an aversion that you're having to uncertainty. And so you're fighting the wrong enemy. The enemy you think you're fighting is the enemy of, of, of knowing what to do. Oh my God, I'm uncertain. This is terrible. I've got to get certain. You know, I've got to vanquish uncertainty in order to be certain. That's not the enemy you've got to fight. The enemy you've got to fight is the aversion to uncertainty. Wow, I'm really feeling uncomfortable about being uncertain. How interesting. Let me see what that's all about. Let me get comfortable with just being present and noticing that there's uncertainty here and not being averse to it, not hating that experience. And if I don't hate that experience, if I allow myself to live in uncertainty and then I get to watch the way it plays out inside my body, I feel the tension, I feel the fluttering, I, you know, I feel the heat in my face. Wow, how interesting. I wonder how long that'll last. Oh, and if I breathe through that, eventually it begins to take on a new shape. And then all of a sudden, for no reason at all, it's like, I know what I want to do. You know, because it doesn't come from you, it comes through you. I do like that. It comes, it doesn't come from you, it comes through you. And it's like, so there's this like Rainer Maria Roque quote, is a poet, and he talks about how Sometimes you're just not ready for the answer. So just appreciate the questions along the way. And eventually the answers will reveal themselves to you when the time is right. And I found that through my own work, whenever I'm tackling a major problem, I, I journal a lot. Like I even have my journal open in front of me. I journal a lot and I try to attack the problem from multiple angles. And it's a right. very linear process, but it's, it forces you to appreciate the uncertainty. So instead of making these like gap, like conclusions, it makes you realize that you really have to appreciate the nuance of the problem you're trying to solve. It was like when Einstein tried to tackle relativity, it took him years and years because he tried to figure out all right, this the simple question, what is it like to ride at the begin at the front of a beam of light? That simple question just boggled his mind. And from the onset, you would think, oh, it's a simple question. I mean, if you're if you're riding on a beam of light, well, you're going at the speed of light, right? Like, but for him, it was something that he had to prove empirically. And for him, he couldn't just make this like hasty decision to just kind of jump to a conclusion. He had to kind of figure out every single nuance along the way. That's not to say that you don't have your own frustrations. You might have your own malaise. At some point, you might want to give up on the problem entirely because you think you're not getting anywhere. But it's important to know that no matter where you go, no matter what you experience, that you still got to kind of bring your back down to center and still appreciate the problem for what it's, what it's revealing because maybe you're not quite yet ready to experience the full answer. Maybe you have to know the entire new, all the nuances along the way. And I think that definitely does speak to a road for mastery. Like anyone can read your book and kind of say, Oh, well, all right, I get this, but they haven't been through what you've been through. Like you understand the nuances behind all of these steps, which if you were to try to put out the nuances behind every single step, this book would be 40 times the size, right? So you have to figure out a way to synthesize all that in a way where it's accessible. But at the same way, when you hire someone like a coach or a mentor, you got to understand that they, if they've been through this process, this road to mastery, they understand the complexity of the problem that you're trying to solve at a much deeper level. And so I think that definitely aligns with, I think it aligns with what you just said, which is not only is it important to appreciate 
everything, every single step of the way, whether it's a, a temperature flare or like a coloration of the face or just like a certain song. But as long as you're kind of grounded in your own identity and the thing that you're looking to solve, then these nuances do help you create a more holistic image of what you're trying to solve and makes you more valuable to the world. And, and I, what I appreciate about you, Numer, is that you, you take a methodical approach to it, a self-reflective approach, and you're using journaling, for example, and looking at things from different angles. Uh, a lot of people don't seem to have the patience for that, or they just sort of fly by the seat of their pants, or they go by their gut. But it's this, you know, for you, and I think to me to a certain extent as well, being methodical in that way and, and journaling and writing, it makes you more mindful. It develops that part of the nervous system that allows you to have greater self-awareness because you're constantly reflecting on it. And if you feel something, you don't run from the feeling, but rather you start asking the question, okay, why do I have this feeling? And, you know, I wonder what, you know, thought might have preceded it or whatever the, you know, there, there's a kind of a, um, a curiosity that takes you deeper and deeper and deeper ultimately into how to clarify that path. Uh, and, and as you said, the nuances, I'll give you another example of nuance is um, you're, trying to achieve a goal and you, you you in this in this example you do know what you want and so you've got a clear vision of what it is and you're moving towards it and you're taking the action steps to achieve it and as you move toward that goal and you know you're doing it from a place of passion because you know as you we've already said you know you've decided I'm, it's happiness first i want to i want to enjoy the journey not just the destination so you're you're doing that, so you're passionate. And from the outside, it's all, I'm working day and night and I'm constantly in motion. And you know, some people might say, damn, new mayor, why don't you just chill out, dude? You're like becoming obsessive. And you're like, no, I'm not obsessive, I'm just passionate. And then sometimes this little nuance occurs where maybe you hit an obstacle and you're not sure how to overcome that obstacle, but you also have gotten so much momentum that you've lost the patience to pull back and wait and look for the best way to move through that obstacle. So instead you keep on doing this and now you've moved from passion to obsession. I gotta get it done, I gotta get it done. And there's this intensity that this process takes on that from the outside looks exactly the same, right? From the outside, you're still working and working and working, but now you're doing it out of need. You're doing it out of demand. You're doing it out of like a sense of, of incompletion. And that kind of energy doesn't produce the results you want. So when you move from passion to obsession, the outer experience is exactly the same, but the inner experience is polar opposite, right? And so how do you know which it is? How do you know when you've walked that line, you know, you crossed that line from passion to obsession? And that's where I would say that the practice of mindfulness comes in, right? It's that self-reflection. It's that ability to pull back and be like, what does it feel like inside of my own skin right now? You know, not just, you know, am, am I willing to turn my attention away from the outer enemy that this, this, this unfinished piece of business, and that to me is the thing I've got to, you know, I've got to beat down senseless versus turning the lens on yourself and be like, what is the inner enemy that I've got to be aware of? Oh, it's, it's obsession. It's this feeling that if I don't get it done, then the world, my world is going to fall apart. You know, and, and, and that capacity, the capacity to turn toward the methodical, toward the self-reflective, toward the journaling, toward the, you know, looking at it from different angles. That process only occurs if you have been practicing the art of mindfulness. Because then you'll see it, you'll feel it. You'll be like, oh, this doesn't feel the way it felt before. 
And most people don't do that, right? Most people don't like, you know, people work through, uh, like they'll get a bladder infection because they didn't know they had to go to the bathroom because they were so obsessive that they were tuned out of their body. Yeah, people are like extremely distracted. Like, and I, I found that, so there's like a, mental and physical discipline that you have to achieve in order to be fully mindful. So for instance, that person who has like that bladder problem is not realizing it, but they're so seeped into their Netflix that they're not even paying attention or there's, they're eating bad food and like the sugar in that food is causing them to crave more sugar. So right. it's interesting. There's a body mind, uh, I guess thing that, that it needs to work together. And I found that for instance, uh, there are nights when I go, so I don't watch TV at all. Um, I don't watch Netflix, but like uh, I might go sometimes to like a barbecue or a gathering or something. I might overindulge, I might overeat, and it just doesn't feel good. And then that that feeling, it's crazy, but I ate a lot of food, but then the food has chemicals in it that triggers, triggers my brain to want more, even though I'm physically full, and it takes me away from present state. And so there's, there's a lot that needs to happen in order for you to uh, become present and mindful. And it's not the easiest thing. I mean, you can sit down and you can meditate all day long and visualize. And I think that's definitely important. But if you're not watching your physical health, if you're not tackling like your things that could get you addicted, or if you're already addicted, if you're not trying to step away from those addictions, it can get really, really tough. Uh, so I found that taking an entire holistic approach does help me become more mindful. But I've also found that case in point, the one thing that I do that kind of ties everything together is the journaling. Because it's almost like when you have a certain problem that you want to solve, and if you don't journal it, well, then you almost in some ways can't get past the first detail of that problem because you're hoping, oh, I'll figure it out. But you start writing, you start mapping things out, you start brainstorming, you start to realize, oh, there's all these other things involved, right? And then it gives you a more holistic approach to, I journal about my diet, about my life, about my career, everything, and everything does connect. So I think that if so, those who don't journal, and by the way, journaling is one thing, I mean, writing by hand, you can use voice memos if you want I mean, whatever capacity or you can do video like logs. I think journaling is incredibly important for me, at least when it comes to mindfulness, because it helps me to measure my growth along the way. It's a great tool. I, I used to do a lot of journaling. I don't right now. Um, and I, I think maybe it's just because I do a fair amount of writing and I work a lot of stuff out when I, you know, when I'm writing my next book or my next article, it's just like, if I've got something going on, but it, it becomes almost like, you know, journaling for the entertainment of others. <laughs> but, uh, but really ultimately it's for me because it helps me sort out my thoughts. I do think better on paper. Uh, but I know other people who think better out loud. So like maybe they find somebody else that likes to listen to them ramble on and and it's just that's their form that's their their a bit their way of doing journaling but whatever it is you know whether it's writing or speaking or whatever it's the commitment to self-inquiry it's a commitment to knowing as you said that that you want to get past that initial thought you want to kind of get get curious i mean all of this work is about curiosity and yeah i mean mind uh, mindfulness meditation is one great tool it's not the only one and ultimately, what we're trying to do is to create what's called practical mindfulness. 
So practical mindfulness means that I'm mindful every minute of every day. And so it's not just about sitting down and meditating. And meditating is a great way of like forcing the, the, you know, forcing the exercise. But, you know, if you're working out, that could be a form of meditation, so to speak. It's a mindfulness practice. Um, how you eat is a mindfulness practice. I remember being at a, at a silent meditation retreat. And it was the middle of the night. And there's no food. You know, you got to wait till the next day until they, you know, you don't have any access to anything except on a schedule. So, you know, your last meal is at 5 p.m. You don't eat again until the next day at like 6.30 a.m. And um, not that you really need the food, but, you know, you're used to having food, right? So if you, all you had was a half an orange at five o'clock and now it's like one o'clock in the morning and you're laying there in bed awake because you've been meditating all day, you don't really need sleep. And now suddenly you're like, I'm really hungry, shit, what do I do? And then, and then it becomes interesting to watch how your brain works. It's like, I'm really hungry. What can I eat? I can't eat anything. This is stupid. I can't believe I'm here. Why did I do this? And then you go off in that direction or you're like, okay, well, maybe if I sneak into the kitchen and well, maybe if I just imagine food and you get into this like major mental thing around this sensation that you're feeling right now. And then all of a sudden, based on the practice that you've been working on, you say, what's, how does practical mindfulness play in here? Well, practical mindfulness in that situation is Instead of trying to get rid of the hunger, what if I were to just be mindful of the hunger? What does hunger feel like? Where do I feel it? Where do, how does it move through my body? Um, how do my thoughts uh, take off based on it? And then you become the witness again. Now you're observing the whole process unfold. And often when you stop obsessing about the thing you think you need, that it goes away. You know, how is it that I spent the last five minutes thinking about about what does hunger look like versus how am I going to get some food in my stomach? And I'm not hungry anymore. How'd that happen? That's great. Now I, I understand it's kind of like if you just shed light, like your observation on the thing, it tends to just kind of quiet down. Mm-hmm. I found that times when I'm hungry, I'll just look at myself and I'll say, all right, Namir, I know you're feeling hungry, but are you really? And I'll just kind of look at the feeling of hunger and after about 15, 20 minutes, it, it does subside. So I'm, what I'm curious about, I know we have a few minutes left, is just, so in this book, I mean, there's a lot of great lessons. And I know that you studied to become, you were a chiropractor and you left that. But I'm wondering, is like, what was your journey into like discovering all this knowledge? I mean, how did you come across these five principles, these frameworks and all that? Like, what did you go through in order to figure out what you know now? A lot of the work in there kind of um, is is a mashup of of um, spiritual principles, Buddhist principles, you know, um, and other Eastern uh, philosophy, as well as uh, some of what monastic traditions teach. And even in Christianity or Judaism, when you get into a monastic tradition, you know, if you're a monk, um, then you're really trying to uh, create your relationship with God at a much higher level. Or, and if you're not thinking of it from the perspective of God, you're still trying to create a greater degree of, of, of self-awareness at a higher level. So uh, that's what I found in, in my meditation practice. And for me, it was the fact that I was miserable. You know, for a long time, I, was, I had anxiety, I had depression, I was, um, my self-esteem was, was bad. Uh, and I, you know, I was carrying old messages in my head that kind of haunted, haunted me uh, and that I was making real. 
that I was, you know, this is who I am. This is like we, you and I talk about identity, right? And who are you really? And what's the truth of your identity, right? So a lot of us, we mistake our identity for our personality. We mistake our identity for the old messages that have been absorbed into us. And those aren't their identity. Our identity is, is a much deeper, more profound aspect of who we are. It's like, what, are we, what were you put on the planet to be? But in order to discover that, like we talked before about finding silence, before you can discover that, you've got to first shed all these layers of crap. And so I started out with, with you know, Western uh, psychotherapy, and then I found, um, found meditation, and I found journaling and a lot of other tools and strategies along the way. And, um, and because I am like you in the sense that I've got a methodical mind, and I, you know, I felt like it made more sense to break it down into steps, because that's what, looking back on it, what worked best for me. You know, first make a commitment, then choose uh, to live a lifestyle that doesn't make your life and everybody else's life worse. Then d develop focus, then learn what it means to lean into a problem versus running away from it, right? This, like how to not to do that. Uh, and then finally, how to assemble the system around you that's gonna help support you in, in growing in that way. So it's a, it is a system, it is a, it is a sequence and people can read the book and, um, and follow the formula, and of course, as you said, there are nuances upon nuances. You're going to find things that aren't in the book along the way, but hopefully it gives you a frame of reference that you say, okay, um, you know, what would Stephen do <laughs> in this situation? Or you join a mastermind group or, you know, give me a call or whatever. So how do you get, how do, well, let me first back up. What are you offering right now and how do people get to work with you? Uh, well, the, 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 there, I'm going to give you a couple of things. One, one is if you were to go to bestofsteve.com, uh, that's a landing page. And on that landing page, when you, you know, put in your email address, I'll send you uh, the first chapter of, of Bulletproof. So you'll get a digital download of the first chapter. It's, it's the introduction, the first chapter, and a few other things. So uh, that's a great way to get started because now you're on the mailing list. We'll send you, I've got weekly wisdom tips and a lot of the stuff we talk about gets kind of purged in my writings and people will write me questions and I'll respond to those questions or write a blog post based on them. So it's a really good way to kind of become part of the community. It's just go to bestofsteve.com. Uh, if you want to explore who I am as a speaker or as an author or some of my other programs, go to my, my website, which is stevetaubman.com, steve, T-A-U-B-M-A-N.com. And lastly, um, I'm beginning more and more to apply these principles to well-being, physical well-being. And so how do things like mindfulness and hypnosis, changing consciousness, states of consciousness, and becoming more... Um, uh, more masterful over your own thinking, how does that influence your physical well-being? How does it affect your immune system? And it turns out in great ways. So we, I, I started a new website. It's called suggestionhealing.com. So if anybody out there is like looking for uh, an opportunity to do some work, some hypno coaching, some um, you know, therapeutic hypnosis uh, to help them to fight an illness or an injury or something or fight chronic pain, that's what that's for. That's incredible. All right. Yeah. Uh, guys, so those websites are bestofsteve.com. If you want to grab the first introductory chapter and some other resources, if you want to do, if you want to look at some of his other courses, go to stevetaubman.com. And then if you're looking at something that's more so, if you've got some sort of illness or some kind of thing that needs to be healed physically in your body, 
to go to suggestionhealing.com and in that case, Steve can kind of guide you towards the process of using mental self-hypnosis, meditation, visualization to kind of tap into your inner healing abilities. I would probably say this is, it reminds me of what Wim Hof does. So of course, it's not the Wim Hof method. It's the Dr. Talbot method or whatever you want to call it. But I think there's a lot of value here. And I'm going to make sure that I'll, I'm going to send this out to my list and let them know that this, this does exist so that hopefully you can get some people to kind of whoever sees value in you to hit you up and uh, go from there here for you. If you need me. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. And you take care. It's awesome. Have a great one.